Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Frank Bellamconda. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Always On EM podcast. This is the February episode. My name is Venk Bellamconda. I'm excited to be here with my colleague, Dr. Alex Finch. How are you today? I'm doing great. Excited to talk about some unique rhythms. Fantastic. And to the entire audience that's listening, I was really excited to see, I don't know if you knew this, Alex, our audience outside of the U.S. this month is really hitting the U.K., Australia, Canada, and Bahrain. I never expected that we'd be reaching that group. Bahrain is kind of a new addition to our listener group, so pretty exciting. Well, welcome to all of you. We're so excited to have you listening along. On Podbean, we got two new followers, Ashley Olson and Vishal Goyle. Both decided to follow us. Thank you so much. Of course, on all the other platforms, there were other followers that we just don't know the names of, and we appreciate all of you. If you are new to the show, please don't forget you can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at alwaysonem or via email at alwaysonem at gmail.com. And if you aren't new to the program, that means you're coming back. You must like what you're hearing. We'd really appreciate it if you could tell your friends and other colleagues about what you derive as a benefit from listening, and hopefully they'll join in too. Alex, um, you and I are going to be speaking at a conference coming up, right? We are. Uh, I'm very excited to go to Las Vegas together. Planet Hollywood. We're going to be on the Strip. That'll be a lot of fun. And I think we'll be talking about some pretty cool stuff as well. What are you presenting on? I will be talking about syncope and ECGs. And so if anyone out there wants to come hang out and review a couple interesting topics, we'd love to have you there. And I'm going to be talking about different ultrasound topics. And this is all part of the Urgent Care Updates 2023 conference. So it's going to be May 4th to the 6th, 2023 at Planet Hollywood in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, The course director is Nathan Jacobson. You had a chance to meet Nathan recently. Yeah, wonderful guy. Yeah, I've worked with him for a while. He's, He's a really nice guy and puts on a good show every time. So join us if you can. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Alex, but Colin Bucks and Dr. Alvarez from Stanford, they put on a high-performance resuscitation teams conference. Have you heard about this? I've heard about it. I really want to attend it because I think some of the things we talk about on the show are the physiology, but just as important is the team dynamics in a complex resuscitation. And, And I want to learn more, so I would love to go to this one. I haven't gone either, but People who have attended tell me it's wonderful. Um, This year, it's April 13th to the 15th, 2023, at the Lowe's Minneapolis Hotel in Minneapolis, Minnesota. If you're not familiar with the the concept, this this conference uses high-intensity scenarios to really augment a deep dive into how team members take communication, process that, and take action based on that, and how we can best collaborate, lead, or be a teammate in these high-intensity moments. The other thing I want to share that I just downloaded a new audiobook. And it was from my office mate or office neighbor, Rick Winter's new book called You're the Leader, Now What? It's a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And so I'm really excited. I'm going to be traveling to Hawaii with my family in a week or so. And I might just listen to this on the way. I am also looking forward to reading it. Uh, Rick is just an incredible guy. He's so funny, so insightful. I can't wait to learn from him on this topic. And he... He has a style of leadership I would love to emulate. Very calm, under fire, and has kind of an artistry about the way he communicates and listens and enriches people. So hopefully that comes through in the book. Well, that's a lot of backstory, but thanks for listening. Please continue to follow and tell other people. Um, But I'm sure you're here for the show. Our guest today is Dr. Abhishek Deshmukh. He's an associate professor of medicine and a consultant physician in the Division of Heart Rhythm Services within the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine here at Mayo Clinic. He serves as co-director of the Sarkoid Clinic and director of the Cardioversion Unit. Dr. Deshmukh has authored over 325 peer-reviewed publications, multiple book chapters, so many editorials, letters to the editor, commentaries, and the like. He's consistently recognized as a top-class teacher and recipient of Teacher of the Year Awards in 2020 and 2021. We're really glad you could join and help teach our group, and especially Alex and I. Thank you so much. Thank you. Very nice to join you guys, and hopefully we can have some fun. Oh, yes. We are very excited. I know I have a lot to learn on this topic. So do I. Is it okay if we start out with a, a quick case? Absolutely. So... I'm uh, working in a small emergency department. 
far away from our, our large Mayo Center here, and a 34-year-old male registers. The chief complaint is syncope. I walk into the room and his first question is, when can I get out of here? He just, he's ready to go. He says, I feel great. I don't remember what happened. I passed out, but I'm feeling better now. I get an ECG. Overall, it looks pretty good, but I notice the PR interval is a little bit short. All of a sudden, the monitor starts to ding, and I look up. He's in a wide complex tachycardia. What's going through your mind? Great. So I think that's a great case. So, you know, if somebody comes in with syncope and they have a WPW pattern or Wolf-Parkinson-White pattern or presence of a short PR interval and a delta wave on the ECG, you know, couple of things come to my mind. Number one, was the syncope really due to this ECG pattern or was it like a vasovagal syncope or something else syncope? And that's why the patient presented to the emergency room. And now you're just having an acute recognition of a chronic thing which has been going on for many, many years. So I think here the history is really going to be the king. So if you think that this was really an, uh, an arrhythmogenic sounding syncope, for example, he had palpitations, he became profoundly dizzy, lightheaded and passed out and somebody got an ECG which showed a wide complex tachycardia or by serendipity when you're in the emergency room and you saw this gentleman having wide complex tachycardia at the time with maybe some lightheadedness or near syncope, then at least then this would be called as a Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. So you have the ECG pattern along with this uh, tachycardia and symptoms. So if I see something like this, the first thing I would suggest for a, a physician who's calling me like that, you know, electrophysiologists are not, uh, are almost like oncologists. So for oncology, tissue is the issue. So same thing for EP docs, you know, we really want to have that ECG for us to look at. Because that 12-lead EKG, apart from giving us the diagnosis that this is certainly a wide complex tachycardia, you know, maybe ventricular tachycardia or maybe a pre-excited atrial fibrillation, which is looking wide, uh, wide complex. It can also tell us a lot of things about where this accessory pathway might be in case we need to ablate it down the line. So the first thing I'll probably tell you is to get a 12-lead ECG so we can see what's going on. And certainly if the patient is hypotensive, tachycardic, and you know, you kind of do your ACLS maneuvers and you can certainly shock the patient out to normal rhythm if he's a very, very unstable. But few things what you can do is that it all depends what the rhythm from the atrium is. If it is atrial fibrillation, then this wide complex tachycardia is going to look quite irregular. But if it is an atrial tachycardia or if it is an AVNRT, which is using this pathway as a bystander, that is going to be a more regular tachycardia. So first question, when you look at the ECG, is it a regular or irregular? If it is irregular, then look at atrial fibrillation could be the thing. Now in ideal world, say if you have all the time in the world in the emergency room and you are just having that one patient that you're going to spend your entire shift working that person up, then few things what you can do if the patient is reasonably stable is you can uh, look at the measure the R to R interval in that rhythm strip and find out if any of the R to R interval is less than 250 milliseconds because that becomes important. So as you know, AFib is going to be irregular. So your R to R interval is going to be irregular. But if the R to R interval at any of this irregularity is less than 250 milliseconds, then that's a risk that this patient could potentially have sudden cardiac death because of this rhythm, because this pre-excited AFib can degenerate it into VF and a patient can have uh, you know cardiac arrest. So that's how people die from Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome if the accessory pathway is conducting very rapid. So that's one thing I would look from an ECG. The second thing I would look from the, uh, from the ECG standpoint is going to be the location of the accessory pathway. And that can help us where the accessory pathway is going to be. Because in uh, ECG, you know, whenever a vector is going towards an electrode, it will make a positive wave. And whenever the vector is going away from that electrode, it will make a negative wave. So based on that, you can kind of find out whether the where the accessory pathway is going to be. Third thing would be from management standpoint, you know, what would you do for somebody with a wide complex tachycardia, say atrial fibrillation with pre-excitation? Now, before you absolutely make that, that diagnosis, there's one caveat for analyzing ECGs with uh, pre-excitation in tachycardia. So, you know, we know how to differentiate wide complex tachycardia like SVT with aberrancy versus VT. But one thing that none of the criteria is what we have can ever differentiate whether it is VT or pre-excited tachycardia. So if the tachycardia is using an accessory pathway or if it is a VT, 
there is no there is no clinical uh, or ecg criteria to differentiate what is what and the reason behind that is that the accessory pathway exists between the atrium and the ventricle so the first part of the heart to get activated based on that accessory pathway is going to be where that accessory pathway is inserted on the ventricle by the valve but if by chance you also have vt coming exactly from that same spot both the accessory pathway related tachycardia and vt will look the same that's why you know obviously we can always treat it as vt if patient is unstable that's why we'll do all the acls things but if you are sure that it is irregular you know some beats are very wide some beats are not very wide and it is looking clearly pre excited then that would be a, your sure diagnosis this is pre excited uh, atrial fibrillation or some tachycardia going on so make sure that you don't apply any of the uh, you know various criteria is what you know to differentiate wide complex tachycardia for this then once you make a diagnosis this is indeed pre excited atrial fibrillation going on patient is unstable you cardiovert and then you are hopefully done but you can also terminate atrial fibrillation you can give a medicine such as iv ibutalide or iv procainamide that can help to terminate that afib and then uh, hopefully the patient will be back in normal rhythm with a pre excited ecg what one should not do during a pre excited atrial fibrillation is to give adenosine because what happens there you know when you have atrial fibrillation going on it's there's a the atrium is beating at 250 300 beats per minute and then the way that wave is going to go to the ventricle is either going to go through the av node or it's either going to go through the accessory pathway and then it becomes a race whoever wins will make a qrs so if the av node wins you'll make a narrow qrs if the pathway wins you'll make a wide delta wave qrs but a lot of times there is a fusion between the av node and the pathway so it may not look completely pre excited it may not look completely normal qrs it's somewhere in the middle so once that's happening if you give adenosine you're going to block the av node so if you block the av node the entire traffic from the atrium is going to go to the ventricle through the accessory pathway so imagine if in afib your heart is be atrium is beating at 250 300 beats per minute av node is blocked so all that uh, activation goes down the pathway and the ventricle starts to beat at 250 300 beats per minute and that's how again people can become ischemic or have vf with this tachycardia so don't give adenosine in this situation So for your patient coming back you know if he's in wide complex tachycardia and he's unstable I would cardiovert him and be back to normal rhythm and maybe also at that time ask him is this how you felt when you had syncope in the field because then you have established a symptom arrhythmia correlation with that ecg and then it kind of fits the pack fits the picture of wolf parkinson white syndrome but post that once you cardiovert get an ecg and see where things are and then based on that then we can uh, you can send the patient home if you want to which is unlikely because if patient almost had this wide complex tachycardia so they may need a more urgent uh, evaluation by an electrophysiologist to see what would be the best way of treating this patient because you have to do two things number one you have to control afib because if he has afib again he can go into this tachycardia and number two you want to see if you can ablate the accessory pathway so even if the patient gets afib down the line like everybody all of us are going to get afib the accessory pathway is not conducting then at least they'll have a narrow complex tachycardia so these are the kind of things few other things you know we could look into that is make sure their heart otherwise is structurally normal because accessory pathways would occur in normal heart but if you have more than one accessory pathway so you cardiovert and you have two couple of different types of uh, delta wave what you are seeing then you have to rule out something called as epstein's anomaly which is an anomaly of the tricuspid valve those are the patients who could get multiple accessory pathways and again those would be a patient who will be at a risk for sudden cardiac death so i think a lot can be done when you see a patient with uh, wide complex tachycardia and setting of uh, pre excitation and those are really fun cases for us to do it is just unfortunate these cases we see more in boards and on tests and read more in the books than what we see in our real life in the emergency room but i'm sure you know the listeners would acknowledge one of their ultimate cases what they might have seen in their career would be one of these pre excited atrial fibrillation do you mind if i just repeat back what i heard one of the things in particular i really appreciated was your structure to evaluating an ecg in this case and if i remember correctly you said first ask yourself what is the atrial rhythm sinus versus irregularity maybe afib and then also the r to r interval being under 250 milliseconds is a risk factor for sudden cardiac death and then trying to analyze the location of the accessory pathways and then deciding what to do about it is that right absolutely wonderful 
I told you, Venk, beforehand that I was really excited for this interview because I knew in the first five minutes I would already be learning a lot, and that has definitely come to fruition. When we wanted to schedule an interview with you, part of it comes down to that issue of adenosine that you talked about. For the emergency physician, uh, a fear of harm. I tell my residents and my med students that the issue with Wolf Parkinson White is sometimes doing the things that we usually do results in that harm. And this is one of those situations where you don't want the last thing a patient sees before they have a terrible adverse outcome is you saying, no problem, we've got this. I'm going to give you a little adenosine and a thumbs up. I want to back up a little bit because you used a couple of words that I want to better understand. You talked about AVRT. Can you tell us what that means and what it's describing? So AVRT is atrioventricular reentrant tachycardia. So this is the tachycardia which involves the atrium and it involves the AV node. So the way this AVRT works out is that you could have conduction going down the AV node and then it climbs up the accessory pathway. So you will have sinus rhythm, or going on and then suddenly you'll have a PAC or a PVC and if it's a PAC it goes down the AV node goes to the ventricle at that time it notices that the accessory pathway is uh, open for conduction so the activation climbs up the accessory pathway and then comes down again through the AV node so here the AV node becomes the anti-grade limb of the tachycardia and the accessory pathway becomes the retrograde limb of the tachycardia so in that, the QRS is going to be narrow because your conduction is going down the AV node. So that would be orthodromic reentrant tachycardia. The other part of AVRT is antidromic reentrant tachycardia, where the activation is going from the atrium to the accessory pathway, then to the ventricle, and then it climbs up the AV node. So those are the patients who will have ART, antidromic reentrant tachycardia. And those are the patients because it, if it is activation is going down the accessory pathway, your QRS is going to be wide and you will go, you're going to see a delta wave. So that's how I would look at AVRT. So AVRT would be atrioventricular reentrant tachycardia. Of that, there are two kinds, ORT, which is orthodromic reentrant tachycardia, where the conduction is going down the AV node and climbing up the accessory pathway. And the second is antidromic reentrant tachycardia, where the conduction goes down the AV no conduction goes down the accessory pathway and climbs up the AV node. Okay, and can you distinguish that from AVNRT? They sound very similar. Yes, so there is you can differentiate. So AVNRT, the conduction is just uh, the circuit is in the AV node, and then it goes down to the ventricle. So if you if you decide to uh, conduct an experiment that uh, you know somebody's heart you chop off the ventricles the patient will still have AVNRT because it is a atrioventricular nodal reentrant tachycardia so the reentry is happening in the AV node but for AVRT if you chop off the ventricles the tachycardia will terminate because ventricle is part of the circuit so if you have a narrow complex tachycardia, uh, the standard teaching is, you know, look at the RP interval. If it is a very short, uh, short RP interval, think it could be AVNRT. If it is a little bit longer, think it, it's going to be ORT. But these are all like epidemiological analysis. If you look at from pure electrophysiological analysis, a short RP tachycardia can be ORT and even a long RP tachycardia can be AVNRT because there are various kinds of AVNRTs. It all depends how quickly the retrograde activation is to really define what is the RP interval. So as from, uh, from if you see a patient with narrow complex tachycardia, which is quite regular, regardless whether it is AVNRT or whether it is ORT with adenosine, both the tachycardia are going to terminate. So then it becomes more of an intellectual question or an academic question what this tachycardia really was. And a lot of times on ECG, it's hard to know. And most of the time, these, get, these things can get more clarified during an EP study. That's incredible. I would have thought that there would have uh, been some clear differentiation on ECG, but I realize now I'm going to treat them the same, and so I don't need to, to wax poetic too much over them. I think an area that I've been confused is throughout my training, sometimes I got the sense SVT was a specific rhythm, whereas as I was preparing for our talk today, it seems like 
all of these are types of SVT. Is that right? So SVT, if you think of the term supraventricular tachycardia, so anything which is happening above the ventricle will be an SVT. And SVT is a big family. So it will have AFib, A-flutter, atrial tachycardia, then all the tachycardia is dependent on the AV node like AVNRT, AVRT. So SVT is just a big family of tachycardias. It is just that, you know, because AFib is so common, we just call AFib as an AFib or, or atrial fibrillation. And then AVNRT, again, epidemiologically is the most common narrow complex tachycardia. That's why just all the SVTs get labeled as AVNRT. But, you know, there are different kinds of SVTs. So. so then when we break it down, what exactly defines WPW in an ECG and in your electrophysiology lab? So if you look at the ECG, you will have a P wave, a short PR interval, and you'll have a slurred upsloping of the uh, QRS complex, also called as the delta wave. Now, the reason why we get delta wave is again, as the conduction is going down the AV node to the bundle of his and then to the bundle branches, you get a narrow QRS. But when you're going down exclusively over an accessory pathway, then you don't get that narrow QRS because the narrowing of the QRS is really dependent on the his Purkinje system. So when the accessory pathway, you are bypassing the his Purkinje system, that's why you get that wide or slurred looking QRS. But you might have also seen in practice that, you know, you may think it looks like a delta wave, but it is not clearly a delta wave. And that can That's definitely it happen. It does happen. Me. It <laughs> happens all the time. Yeah. And then, and that happens because, again, there is fusion because it's, again, a race for the sinus node to go down the AV node and go over the accessory pathway. So whoever wins will make a QRS. But if both of them are kind of equal, then you can get an in-between beat or a fused beat. And that's why sometimes it is not very clear. So few actually, if you just if you have interest, you know when the original description of Wolf Parkinson White syndrome was described by Wolf Doctor Wolf Doctor Parkinson and Doctor White, they didn't call it delta wave; they called it some sort of bundle branch block. So they felt that this was a condition where there was a P wave, a short PR interval, and a bundle branch block, and they found few cases where all these patients had a distinct tachycardia. And believe it or not, this was in uh, 1930, I think, that they gave atropine. So what atropine would do is that it is going to improve conduction over the AV node. So in that situation, the PR may not change, but that bundle branch block or that accessory or the delta wave disappeared. And uh, they felt that atropine can be used to treat it, treat bundle branch blocks. So atropine can be used to treat bundle branch block. And later, 10 years later, then people actually found out that this was actually a unique situation of an accessory pathway. And it is just that you speed up the AV node. That's why the conduction over the accessory pathway goes away. And that's how, you know, atropine came into use. And now we do exactly the opposite. Instead of speeding up the AV node, we are blocking the AV node by doing adenosine. So, you know, see how times have changed over the last almost 90 years of uh, WPW discovery. Now, did that change when, was there a Dr. Kent that named the accessory pathway or is that? Yes. yes. So, you know, if, again, if you go down to the history, the in initial description which was made, uh, they felt that there was a fiber between the atrium and the ventricle. But the gentleman who initially proposed this was severely criticized that, well, nothing like this ever exists. But then over a period of time, people started to learn more about it through autopsy studies and all that, and then this clearly was noted. And that's the <coughs> bundle of Kent that then yes, gets bundle, named. Yeah. Yes, bundle of, yeah. So if you have heard bundle of Kent, uh, uh, James fibers, all these things over a period of time were noted to be these uh, you know, extra connections. But you know, some of them exist, some of them you know, don't exist, or they were part of uh, an observation which was certainly not uh, uh, proven later. But this is how the whole story of anything accessory conduction in the heart or accessory pathway conduction in the heart started. When we talk about accessory pathways, that's essentially the same thing as, an, as a pre-excitation pathway. Correct. Accessory pathway uh, is an anatomical structure. Pre-excitation is what we see on an ECG. Makes sense. And then WPW would be a condition that could precipitate AVRT. Is that WPW right? is a syndrome where you have tachycardia, which is AVRT, or can be atrial fibrillation along with a pre-excited ECG. How short of a PR interval 
would make you concerned that the patient could have an accessory pathway, either WPW or something like LGL, some some concern? I'd look at the PR interval and, you know, if anything which is less than 120, 130 milliseconds, then it'll catch my eye. But then I'll look at the uh, QRS. If the, I would be more looking for the QRS and the delta wave rather than just looking at the PR interval. Because if you think of PR interval on a normal ECG without pre-excitation, it is the time between atrial depolarization and ventricular depolarization. So the time it spends for the wave to go from the sinus node through the atrium, through the AV node and to the ventricle. But you can have situations where the conduction in the atrium is so slow and that is causing the PR interval to be longer. Or you can have a condition where the conduction in the AV node is slow and that's making the PR interval longer. So you can have both ways. The slowing of conduction in the atrium can also make the PR interval longer and the slowing of conduction in the AV node can also make the PR interval longer. Now you may wonder why am I telling you this right now with this session. The reason for that is in Epstein's anomaly where some patients can get multiple accessory pathways, the PR interval may not be very, very short like what you would expect in other conditions because in Epstein's anomaly, the atrium is so severely enlarged that or you might have heard of Himalayan P waves to describe the ECG in Epstein's anomaly with the P wave being very, very tall. So that makes the conduction in the atrium very, very slow. So the time of atrial depolarization increases and that's why sometimes the PR interval is longer in those patients. So I wouldn't just completely make a diagnosis based on the PR interval, but I would certainly look at the QRS more so, the delta wave. On my next ED shift, if an ECG comes across my desk and there's a short PR interval and a QRS that I think looks a little bit more sloping than normal, what do I do with that patient if they're otherwise asymptomatic? Do they need to be admitted to an EP service or can they get outpatient follow-up? Great question. So this, so if you look at just the epidemiology of WPW ECG pattern, it's about 0.1 to 0.3%. So not everybody with an accessory pathway will have an accessory pathway mediated tachycardia. So that's important to know. So again, if the patient comes to the emergency room for a tachycardia, then we'll manage as we discussed. But if they're coming in with say right upper quadrant pain, which has nothing to do with the pre-excitation, I would still take care of the right upper quadrant first and then do the risk stratification to see whether this patient is at a likely risk of sudden cardiac death or anything else from that standpoint. Not every patient who has a delta wave needs to be admitted to the hospital if there are other acute issues for which they came to the ER have been resolved and most of them can be done as an outpatient. Do I need to send them home on some sort of medication to make it safe for that follow-up? I would not. I, you know, I, if the again, if the patient has never had any palpitations or any syncopal events, then uh, I would not do anything to that patient. They can just follow up with their cardiologist as an outpatient or electrophysiologist, more so for risk stratification, because then you need to understand if it, they'll be at a risk of sudden cardiac death and all that. If we don't yet know their risk of sudden cardiac death, should we empirically tell them to avoid athletics or exercise or anything like that until they're cleared? Great question. So again, it all depends what you see in the uh, uh, during your monitoring. If they're in the ER and if they're on telemetry, and if you see sometimes there is an accessory pathway, sometimes there is no accessory pathway. Or if you take them for a walk and if they climb up a couple of flights of stairs or their heart rate increases for whatever reason they are there, and if the accessory pathway suddenly goes away with elevated heart rate, that tells you that the, it, the accessory pathway conduction is not very strong because as the heart rate increases, if the AV node wins, you're not going to get the delta wave. So those would be generally the low risk patients. But if you see something like that in the ER and if you're really curious, I think doing like a ambulatory monitor is a great idea because that can tell you, you know, if the accessory pathway pattern keeps on changing or even an outpatient stress test can be helpful because again, if the activation changes during stress test and the pre-excitation goes away with increased rates, that tells you that uh, that abrupt drop in or change in accessory pathway conduction would suggest this is again a low risk pathway. But if somebody exercises and goes up to like 200 beats per minute and the accessory pathway is still conducting in, in, in a good way, that tells you that might be a little bit of a high risk uh, pathway. So coming to athletics question, that's very important. If an athlete, and I can in athlete, I'll also club a high-risk uh, occupation like pilots or professional drivers and all that. 
if it's very important that we risk stratify them because these are the patients whose sympathetic drive is going to be very very high and if they go into tachycardia we want to make sure they don't go into pre-excited afib and the risk of sudden death would be higher in that situation so i think doing these measures such as ambulatory monitoring or a treadmill stress test can help and now catheter ablation for accessory pathway is, is so uh, fulfilling gratifying and a safe procedure that uh, these things can get ablated very frequently and then they should do well if there's somebody in an emergency department where they're not able to do ambulatory monitoring or whatnot do you think it's out of bounds for them to say don't do anything in the one week or two weeks till you can get i your think CN. that would be very reasonable okay. till the time they get evaluated yeah. again okay yeah We've talked a lot about accessory pathways, but where where are these pathways coming from? So if you look at embryologically as our heart is developing, you know, initially there are no valves. The atrium and the ventricle are meeting each other. But then as the, uh, as, uh, the heart uh, evolves embryologically, you get to form annulus between the atrium and the ventricle where the valves are going to be sitting. But sometimes if this annulus is not completely formed, then the atrium and ventricle are very close to each other. So the annulus, what we have, they cannot conduct electricity. But if the atrium and some part of the ventricle are touching each other because the annulus at some place is not completely formed, that's where you would have these cells which can conduct electricity from atrium to the ventricle. And that's how accessory pathways are formed. But if you think about it, uh, you know, so I mentioned that where the atrium and ventricle are very close to each other and if they can connect, then, you know, you can have accessory pathway conduction. There is also just from uh, uh, a trivia kind of a thing, there is also a, a ma so this is kind of a God-made accessory pathway where the atrium and the ventricle meet because the annulus doesn't completely form. But it is also a, a, a man-made or a, or a woman-made accessory pathway. And that's seen in patients who get a unique surgery called as Fontan operation, where they connect the right atrial appendage to the right ventricular outflow tract or pulmonary artery. So you can have connection between the atrium and the ventricle there, where the atrial tissue is touching the ventricular tissue. And those are the patients who can also get a little bit of a delta wave in that condition. So these are some of the other trivia from pre-excitation ECG. And in thinking through the tissue that's making that bridge, when we compare the AV node where, and, and please excuse and correct me here because this is, I'm going way back to med school. You have slow fibers there uh, that are somewhat dependent on a calcium influx, which slows things down. And that's the benefit of the AV node. Is the tissue that's making this bridge uh, sodium channel dependent, so it's a, a very fast conductor? Yes, so it is basically atrial tissue or ventricular myocardium which is getting uh, connected at the level of the annulus. So these are responsive to sodium channels. So that's why if you give adenosine, nothing happens to the accessory pathway, but you can block the AV node. But certainly you can use medications such as sodium channel blockers like flaconide or something like that where you can potentially slow the conduction down over the accessory pathway. And that has been used in accessory pathways, which for whatever reason cannot get ablated, or if we ablate, the risk of AV block is very high. For example, accessory pathways very close to the AV node, such as mid-septal pathways or anteroseptal pathways. Those are the conditions sometimes uh, flaconide can be used. That all makes sense to me. But then when I think about that last aspect of our patient, so if this is an SVT that's not AFib, if we're talking about an AVRT, so a fast narrow complex rhythm, and I block the AV node, why isn't that always dangerous? Because if I'm getting a fast impulse and it's going to move down a sodium channel-based pathway, it seems like I would always be knocking out the AV node and uh, a high frequency of signals are going to seek that pathway. So, Am I thinking of that correctly or incorrectly? Yeah, I think you're uh, thinking about it very correctly. So the thing with ORT or narrow complex tachycardia is that the conduction is going down the AV node and then it climbs up the accessory pathway. Okay. But if you block the AV node, there won't be any tachycardia. For whatever reason, and uh, you know, again, this could be kind of a case report kind of a thing, if you block the uh, uh, tachycardia, but adenosine sometimes can trigger atrial fibrillation also, and then if that AFib goes down the accessory pathway, then you can see the wide complex tachycardia. But I think for that, a lot of stars have to be aligned for this thing to happen, and generally it doesn't happen that frequently. 
So I'll reach out when, when it happens to me and we can do the case report we together. Case I love it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> We've talked so far about adenosine and touched on calcium channel blockade. A drug that I saw a lot more back when I was a resident was digoxin. How does that fit in here? Digoxin was used a lot before uh, we had beta blockers and calcium channel blockers because digoxin can also block the AV node. So it was used for that. In current times, it's very... Uh, I would not use digoxin as a, one of the first-line agents unless patient can't take beta blockers or calcium channel blockers for a very strong reason. And then thinking about amiodarone and procainamide, what are your takes on that? Yeah, I mean, you could use all that, but I think, again, you know, the, uh, the catheter ablation has become so effective for these things that if somebody has an accessory pathway and tachycardia, I think all the electrophysiologists are going to jump and do that case because beyond doing the procedure, the electrophysiology is so elegant in that condition that it's always, you know, uh, it's always uh, 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 enticing to do those kind of cases. I mean, I always feel that if you want to impress upon a young doctor or a young colleague that uh, what we do for a living, uh, the best ablation to show them is an accessory pathway uh, ablation because you can clearly see in a second or two that pathway goes away and it never comes back again for most parts. So I think, and the physiology involved is really elegant. That's really wonderful. So if we're seeing that patient in front of us, when should we involve an electrophysiologist? I think if somebody has tachycardia with the accessory pathway, I would consider getting an electrophysiologist right away. If uh, a patient is a high-risk uh, occupation like pilot or he's going on the next mission to Mars or something like that, I would get an EP doctor right away because he may not meet an EP doctor on Mars. Probably not. Likely. Probably not, yeah. And then uh, other thing would be I would get an EP doctor if you are just not comfortable, you know. I mean, I would call the electrophysiologist whenever you want. Yeah. We're blessed here at Mayo Clinic. You are just upstairs and can help us. But some of our listeners are in critical access sites or smaller hospitals. Can you try and describe what patients really should be transferred to a tertiary quaternary center as opposed to outpatient follow-up there? Sure. If somebody has a wide complex tachycardia and is having recurrent episodes of atrial fibrillation uh, in setting of a WPW pattern on ECG and it's proven that this is pre-excited atrial fibrillation, I would consider a more urgent evaluation. That would mean like a, uh, you know, a hospital transfer wherever they can get to see an EP electrophysiologist. But if it is a narrow complex tachycardia which you have terminated with adenosine, and they, by the way, after the tachycardia is gone, now you see a delta wave there. Those are the kind of people you could potentially have uh, outpatient follow-up with the electrophysiologist. Where does the patient fit in that maybe having one or two episodes of wide complex tachycardia, they get cardioverted in the emergency department, they're now feeling well, back to normal, they may have the delta wave on their EKG. Does that patient need a transfer, you think, or could they? Good question, it, it, and sometimes it just becomes more of a logistical issue, you know, that uh, if you send a patient and they are pre-excited AFib, I think I, I would personally transfer that patient because I think those are the patients, if again, like we said, if the risk of sudden cardiac death is high, we won't let them, you know, go home. So yeah, I think a good risk, stratifi risk stratification would be important for them for those conditions. So to close out our first example patient, we have a patient who has a narrow complex tachycardia. They either have AVNRT, AV nodal reentrant tachycardia, or they have AVRT, and that is ORT, the orthodromic reentrant tachycardia. We may not be able to differentiate that based on our ECG, but we can treat it the same, same. way. Exactly. So a patient with a history of WPW doesn't mean you can't give them a calcium channel blocker or adenosine. It's really looking at that QRS complex. So if this patient shows up, we can try vagal maneuvers, we can try adenosine and cardiovert them if we Absolutely. have to. In, for a narrow complex tachycardia. So I feel like I've been able to wrap my mind around orthodromic feels a lot less dangerous. Can we describe a little bit more about antidromic? And between between the two, which one would I want if I had WPW? So as far as antidromic tachycardia is concerned, so the activation is going down the accessory pathway to the ventricle. And in antidromic uh, or uh, reentrant tachycardia, ART, you can have any rhythm in the heart, uh, in the atrium. You can have atrial tachycardia, you can have atrial flutter, you can have atrial fibrillation. 
you can have AVNRT, you know, or you can have one pathway going uh, or conduction between two accessory pathways, one using the anti-grade limb, one using the retrograde limb called as pathway to pathway tachycardia. So either of them is possible. But when you look at from definition standpoint, ART, antidromic re-entrant tachycardia, then there is a re-entry going on. So activation is going down the accessory pathway and climbing up the AV node. So for those tachycardias, again, I would not use adenosine. You know, if they are not in AFib, then I would just cardioward them if they are going very, very fast. No role for anything which is going to slow down the AV node in that patient. So no beta blockers, no verapamil, no adenosine. But in atrial fibrillation, it is just that the atrium is going irregularly quite rapid and there is a race between the accessory pathway and the AV node. So there's nothing coming back up to the atrium because there is no re-entry happening. It is just AFib is going on and you have some beads going down the accessory pathway, some beads going down the AV node. Those are the patients in whom you have to treat the AFib. Again, no, no need for beta blockers or uh, anything which is going to block the AV node. You have to treat the AFib, meaning you have to get them back to normal rhythm. So those are the situations where you can try IV, ibutalide or procainamide with the hope that they can convert them back to normal rhythm. But if the patient is unstable or the tachycardia is too fast, then certainly cardioversion would be the way to go. And that's how all the ACLS guidelines would show that. And so to dig in the, into this a little bit deeper, we have a patient show up and they have a narrow complex AFib. But if they have WPW, that's still a risk to them, even though it looks like it's going down the AV node now because... If we give them a calcium channel blocker as we normally would for AFib with RVR, it will select the accessory pathway. Is that correct? Uh, the other way around. So if you have somebody with AFib and narrow complex tachycardia and occasional beat is a, a pre-excited beat, so that is a very low risk pathway. So that patient is not going to have VF because of pathway. So in that patient, I would control the rate, whichever way you want to do, deltaism, metoprolol, okay. and that can help. But the place where you don't use diltiazem, metoprolol, or adenosine, anything like that, if you have a pre-excited atrial fibrillation, meaning you have AFib going on, but you have many, many delta waves, which are also, and that's, uh, you know, so that would be atrial fibrillation with pre-excitation. Those are the patients where you should not block the AV node. And those will be wide QRSs. Those will be wide Q QRS. And this is also the situation where you said there's no definitive way to distinguish that from VTAC. Yeah, there is no algorithm. I mean, it is rare that VTAC is going to be irregular, like the way this is uh, pre-excited AFib is going to be. It is rare that in VTAC you will have changing QRSs quite a lot. But again, you know, all the things can be can happen, you know, for VTAC also. So that's why there is no algorithm to differentiate a pre-excited uh, tachycardia versus VTAC. If we were to treat a patient uh, not knowing about the history of WPW, and we look at ACLS and we think, I'll start with amio or lidocaine. Would those be reasonable ways to start, or is it does it really have to be procainamide? So the thing with IV amiodrone, if you use it in a pre-excited atrial fibrillation, you could try, but IV amiodrone, the first effect is a beta blocker effect. So again, it's going to slow down the AV node. So those are the patients, that's why I would consider ibutalide or procainamide or just cardioward them. Okay. Would lidocaine be dangerous? Lidocaine wouldn't do anything to that patient. Okay. So lidocaine wouldn't make it worse. Yeah. Amio could make it worse. Procainamide would potentially help. Or ibutalide. You've mentioned ibutalide a few times. I've never personally used that medicine. Can you help me understand what it's doing, how it works, and how I would use it clinically? So ibutalide is a great medicine which probably uh, uh, was used much more frequently, maybe 10, 15 years back, uh, but some people still, you know, uh, like to use it. I mean, you guys are very young, so that's why probably you have not seen it, but if you check with your senior colleagues, they would have used a, a lot of it. So it's given one milligram over 10 minutes, and you have to give it very slowly, one milligram over 10 minutes. The key thing with ibutalide, you have to make sure that the potassium is between four and five, and magnesium is between two and three. And a lot of people will also give, regardless of the level of magnesium, hoping it is normal, they'll still give a bolus of magnesium before they give ibutalide. Because ibutalide can prolong the QT interval, and there is more risk of torsards with ibutalide. So patients where you don't want to use ibutalide is older people, women, abnormal creatinine, low potassium, low magnesium, low EF 
would be the patients who would be at a higher risk of having torsades with ibutalide. But it is a nice medicine which works out very well to convert a flutter to normal rhythm or a fib into normal rhythm. So logistically, it is the dose one milligram, one or, milligram, and that's over ten minutes. People are giving magnesium concomitantly, or bef- before the ibutalide, you can give magnesium. Magnesium, if I recall, it's a slow infusion. Yes. So we'd be leaving this patient tachycardic yeah, for that, a while. That, that's why I would cardiovert him. Okay. And then afterwards use ibutalide. Okay. No, once you cardiovert, if they're back in normal, then there's no need for ibutalide. Okay. So describe which patient is getting that then. If So that is a patient who is in AFib and you are seeing some pre-excitation, but it's not, patient is hemodynamically stable. So you want to, so before you try cardioversion, if you just want to convert him back to normal rhythm, convert the patient back to normal rhythm, that would be a patient to use ibutalide. So they're not tachycardic in that example. They are, I mean, with AFib, they are tachycardic, but they are not, you are not seeing a lot of pre-excitation, for example, or that you are not, cause, the, these pre-excited AFib is not going in and out of VF or something like that. Those are the patients where you can try. Got it. Again, if you ask around, it's one of those things in life you might see it once or twice and that's it sure and i bet every cardiologist and every clinician probably has a different go-to first line yeah we've talked about selecting procainamide in this circumstance similarly can you tell us about the mechanism of that drug and why it's beneficial here procainamide is a sodium channel blocker and the hope is again iv procainamide may terminate afib and it may help to convert the patient back to normal rhythm. And uh, so here we are not treating the accessory pathway by ibutalide or by procainamide. We are treating the AFib. Same with cardioversion, we are not treating the accessory pathway, we are treating AFib. There is really not much medicine to treat the accessory pathway. You know, we are either blocking the AV node by beta blocker, adenosine, calcium channel blockers, or we are slowing down the heart rate, or we are treating the AFib. Or we give atropine, or we disconnect the ventricles. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. We uh, cut off both ventricles, would fix it too. Yeah. That would be a little too dramatic for that patient. <laughs> we'll, we'll save that for upstairs. Yeah. We talked about synchronized cardioversion. I'd love to go over the mechanism by how, how th- that makes things better as well for our listeners. So cardioversion is going to reset the heart. It's basically going to jumpstart the heart. And the reason for synchronizing cardioversion, and what synchronizing mean, you know, you can synchronize it to the R wave or the QRS complex. The aim is to synchronize it on the tip of that R wave and then you deliver energy there, and then that would get the patient back to normal rhythm. But you can also synchronize it to the T wave if you want to, and sometimes we do that in the EP lab to induce VF, that we could give us a small shock on the T wave to induce VF, but that you would not do in practice because then you would induce VF in, in the emergency room and unnecessary action will happen. So when you synchronize, you can synchronize to any wave on the ECG channel. So you can synchronize to the P wave, QRS, or the T wave, but don't synchronize to the T wave because you'll see VF. Uh, Synchronize it to the tip of the R wave to get the patient back into normal rhythm. Okay, so what I hear you saying is, uh, the next time it's unsynchronized and delivers on the T wave and we get a, a run of ET, we say, ah, we meant to do that. that that's what they do in the EP yeah. laboratory and, and now we're doing it too. Yeah. We've learned a lot. Yeah, <laughs> we've learned a lot <laughs> yeah. from this experience. This is cardioversion, but sometimes what can happen with the pre-excited AFib, uh, if the QRS keeps on changing, you know, it is sometimes can be a little bit difficult to s- cause a synchronized cardioversion. So those are the patients you could even defibrillate because by the time they are going so fast that it may be very difficult to sink, so you can just defibrillate. And so the actual mechanism of this is we're delivering the electricity and causing a big depolarization so then the SA node can take over again. Is that what's happening? Yeah. Okay. I think the the last thing I want to dig into here is what is the difference between ART, I think that's the antidromic reentrant tachycardia, and pre-excited AFib? Because in both cases, we have a wide complex. Which is more dangerous, and, and what am I worried about yeah. here? So antidromic reentrant tachycardia, like we said, it's a reentry happening between the accessory pathway and the AV node. So the activation is going. So you have, say, uh, atrial tachycardia going on, or an AVNRT going on, or atrial flutter going on or AFib going on. So any arrhythmia in the atrium can cause a pre-excited tachycardia. But for the re-entry to happen, you need to have participation of both 
the AV node and the accessory pathway. So imagine you have an, uh, a tachycardia which is going down the accessory pathway, climbing up the AV node. So that becomes a reentrant loop and that would be antidromic reentrant tachycardia. Compared to say AFib, where there is really no reentry happening, you have if atrium is going at a certain rate and then it is a race between the AV node and the accessory pathway. So that's why antidromic reentrant tachycardia would normally be a regular tachycardia but pre-excited atrial fibrillation is going to be a wide complex tachycardia and, and irregular tachycardia. Having said that, certain times the pre-excited AFib can also become quite regular and that can happen. And again, this is one of those things you might see once in, a, once in your lifetime is if somebody has an accessory pathway, they try to ablate the accessory pathway and for whatever reason, the accessory pathway was very close to the AV node. So inadvertently the AV node gets ablated, but the accessory pathway remains there and the patient doesn't get a pacemaker because the conduction is still happening from atrium to the accessory pathway. But those are the patients, if they go into pre-excited AFib because there is nothing happening over the AV node because the AV node is blocked, you will get a wide complex tachycardia and you will get a pre-excitation, but AFib will be regular. So for example, if you see when AFib suddenly becomes regular, we think it is AFib with complete heart block. And same is basically in this patient with AFib with pre-excitation. And if the rate is the same, that would be the marker that the AV node is blocked. So those are the patients where you can ask him whether, ask the patient whether they have had a prior ablation or did they ablate the AV node by mistake and all those things. Now where this becomes important is that if you cardiovert this patient or if you shock this patient back to normal rhythm or if you ablate the accessory pathway now, if the accessory pathway is gone, then there is no conduction between the atrium and the ventricle and those are the patients who need a pacemaker. But you can always cardiovert them to normal rhythm and they will still have that same pre-excitation. The clue would be that all the delta waves will look the same in AFib and it will be a very regular tachycardia because there won't be any fusion going down the AV node and going down the accessory pathway. That's incredibly helpful. If the problem is an antidromic reentric tachycardia, so in my mind I'm seeing a regular wide complex rhythm versus AFib with an accessory pathway, how am I going to treat that? So AFib, pre-excited AFib with accessory pathway, you have to treat the AFib. So like we talked about cardioversion or mm -hmm. ibutalide or procainamide. Antidromic reentrant tachycardia, which is involving both the atrium, uh, both the AV node and or both the accessory pathway and the AV node, acutely again you can cardiovert the patient back to normal rhythm. But then you know you'll have to think about how we can ablate the accessory pathway and all that. You, if you want, and if you are in a controlled environment with chest paddles and all that, you can even give adenosine because okay. one of the limb is retrograde limb, and that can terminate the tachycardia as well. Okay, so I'd have to be sure that it isn't. VTAC, yeah. uh, but, but yeah. But these are some of the, like, the, you know, before any movie, they say, don't try these stunts at home. <laughs> so these are kind of things where, you know, it's good to have somebody else, you know, yeah. who has had some experience in this to do it. Right. Couple scenarios I want to make sure that I'm thinking through this correctly. Let's say I'm teaching an ECG session to medical students, hook them up, and we see what looks like a WPW morphology. This is congenital. So sending them for any kind of electrolytes or anything like that, if they have no symptoms, would not be necessary. No. Perfect. Alternatively, the patient comes in, we think they have a, a pre-excited AFib. I know that a lot of my colleagues and I struggle with trying to decide when should we think about ischemia, myocardial ischemia, as a cause for this, as opposed to result of the tachycardia. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that and what tests you would do, <coughs> et cetera, to work that patient out? So it's fascinating because if you have ST elevation or ST depression or T wave changes, those are all seen in a normal looking QRS. And then you can look at ST elevation or ST depression. So you know in patients with left bundle branch block, it is very hard to make a diagnosis of acute MI because there's obviously abnormal depolarization happening because of the left bundle branch block. Same thing with pre-excitation because you are not going down the AV node that is abnormal depolarization from the get-go. So analyzing ischemia in a setting of a pre-excited uh, ECG is challenging. Not impossible, but it is challenging. I know when we talked with Dr. Anavaker a few episodes before, he talked about how VTAC is a presenting rhythm for myocardial ischemia. It can be. What do you think about excited AFib? Do you see that as a 
as a presenting rhythm for myocardial ischemia? Unlikely, okay. unlikely. That was my take yeah. as well. Another thing is that, uh, you know, after say an accessory pathway ablation is done, you know, the accessory pathway is gone, then there is, you can get significant T-wave inversions right away after the ablation. And the reason for that is something called as T-wave memory. So the patient, all that patient's life was, the heart was used to this abnormal connection between the atrium and the ventricle. And uh, so they had abnormal depolarization and abnormal repolarization because of this accessory pathway. But now that the accessory pathway is gone, the T wave doesn't know how to uh, how, how normal repolarization is. So it takes like few weeks before the T wave becomes nice and upright again. So it is fairly common that, you know, the patient gets an accessory pathway ablation, they go home and they have a little bit of chest pain, they go to the emergency room and now they have deep T wave inversion. So you may think, well, is this ischemia? That's probably the first thing to think about because it could be ischemia. All the accessory pathways are on the annulus, tricuspid annulus or mitral annulus. So it can, you can also get coronary artery injury sometimes with accessory pathway ablation. But more often than not, it is T-wave memory. So if you just give it a day, few days, the T-wave will become upright again. So heart also has memory, like brain. I think you're making the case that cardiologists treat the entire, the brain and the heart here. Dr. Deshmukh, given that you lead our cardioversion practice here at Mayo Clinic, I couldn't miss the opportunity to get your experiential feedback on this. When you think about the top pieces of advice you would give emergency physicians with regards to electrical cardioversion, what comes to mind? So for electrical cardioversion, you know, the rhythms you would cardiovert would be most commonly AFib. And again, I'm talking about cardioversion, not defibrillation. So AFib would be number one. And then sometimes if you can't get rid of, say, atrial flutter or SVT, then you can certainly cardiovert or pre-excited atrial fibrillation, what we talked about. Now, AFib becomes a little bit challenging because the patient population for AFib is a little bit different. They are more older people. And if you don't know the anticoagulation status or if you, or even if it is new onset AFib, there is always a chance that the patient may have asymptomatic AFib before and it becomes difficult to just go for cardioversion as a first step. Unless, of course, the patient is sick and is quite hemodynamically unstable, then I would just cardiovert regardless. But if you know the anticoagulation status and uh, say, uh, you know, like all electrophysiologies, as much as we want to ablate AFib, AFib still comes back, you know. So those are the patients, if they are on anticoagulation, then I would, you know, cardiovert them, uh, you know, with sedation and all that. But otherwise, I think, you know, ACLS guidelines would say 100 joules or 120 joules, and then you can shock and get them back into normal rhythm. But again, it has to be a synchronized cardioversion for the QRS, not for the T-wave. There's a lot of nuances to this, and I think you've, you've started to dig into it. In the ED, we frequently see a first-time AFib patient, and they say, my symptoms started two hours ago. I'm not unstable, but I, I don't feel great. Yeah. The approach to, to these patients varies across EDs, and I wanted to get your thoughts on what would be the best situation. In, in our ED, we have a, a practice pathway. The patient has had symptoms for less than 48 hours. A synchronized cardioversion would be reasonable. I believe our practice pathway says that they should receive a dose of a, a DOAC, they should have had it for more than two hours, but less than six hours from when you're going to cardiovert them. And even if their CHADS2 VASC is zero, typically we send them home with 30 days of Correct. anticoagulation. Can you walk us through what the benefit of that anticoagulation would be? Because in some places that isn't the norm. Yeah. So, you know, anticoagulation is important because, again, after cardioversion, the heart is just stunned for a few seconds, and then you come, and then they go back into normal rhythm. Now, if you remember Virchow's triad, what we learned in pathology, the reason why blood clots, because there is tissue damage, there is increased coagulation, and there is slow flow. So in AFib, as the atrium is going at three, four, two, three hundred beats per minute, you can get slowing of flow in the atrium, and it generally likes to pool in a structure of the heart called as left atrial appendage, where the clot can thrombus can form, and that's how people get stroke in patients with atrial fibrillation. That about ninety percent of the strokes are coming from the left atrial appendage. So anticoagulation helps to prevent that thrombus formation in the left atrial appendage. 
and it is not that you have to be in normal rhythm or afib to get a stroke because of afib you can be in paroxysmal afib afib can come and go and you can still get a stroke you know at the time of the event you can still be in normal rhythm but because you have that thrombus formed there you know it's going to go to your brain so that's why we want at least by guidelines that everybody should get anticoagulation minimum for 1 month after a cardioversion and then see how things go but if the patient's chads vas score is high especially in my experience if the ejection fraction is low then i would be very careful about cardioverting without getting a te or some sort of imaging to know how the left atrial appendage looks like so low ef would be my concern that because in low ef again as the blood is flowing slowly uh, you are going to have more pooling of blood and more thrombus formation so anticoagulation is a must after cardioversion at least for a month for low chads vas score but if the chads vas score is high then i would consider independently uh, indefinitely another thing you need to remember that afib is an arrhythmia but it is also known to it is also depends on the company it keeps so most of these people have some sort of high blood pressure diabetes obesity so they'll be at a risk of having recurrent afibs so again if the chads vas score is higher i would give anticoagulation indefinitely Now, if you see, even if you do rate control or rhythm control for AFib, the anticoagulation uh, uh, doesn't depend on that. Even if you have paroxysmal, persistent, or permanent atrial fibrillation, anticoagulation doesn't depend on is not dependent on that. It is only dependent on the Chads vas score. In a lot of the EM literature, we talk about 48 hours as though it's it's this rule. Is the the risk of an LA thrombus the same across that 48 hours, or would you typically get a TE if it was after 24 hours? How do you approach the yeah, risk across that? 24? I think it's just better to be safe. You know, if you if you have uh, you know if you're in a hospital. where you have access to TE I would do a TE guided cardioversion in terms of the actual procedure of cardioversion I I read a study that said anterior lateral has a higher success rate than anterior posterior yes. are there any recommendations you have about how to execute the procedure with a higher success rate no I think anterior lateral is good so I can tell you from say if you are in an ep lab and we are doing a cardioversion and somebody is very obese and we can't uh, get them out of afib few things which can help is to press on the chest pads uh, you know keep a towel or something and then put your hand on that chest pad and see if it just makes better contact hmm. with the skin because sometimes you know you may give all this energy but if that patch is not clearly stuck to the chest then it can you know uh, you, you may not get the energy delivered Second thing if the patient is sweating a lot if the heart rate is quite fast and they have a sympathetic drive which is high they are sweating alcohol withdrawal all those situations those are the times where you again you have to make sure the skin is dry and then you know you place the pads and press on the pad and then shock rarely you can put two pa- uh, you know two two cardioversion machines so you know you have two sequential pads and do a sequential shock it, that's mostly for like really obese people or something like that few times where it may not work if the sympathetic drive is very high so that's why you know i would just sedate the patient make sure that it's a more quiet environment so they are not startled by anything else and then and then shock them another thing is if you're defibrillating and uh, you know one thing to make sure that if uh, there is air in the chest cavity like a pneumothorax the defibrillation may not work out as well or even cardioversion may not work out as well if there is a big pneumothorax so that's something to think about again kind of a trivia kind of a question i didn't know that i thought you were going to go i had one instance where there was air between the patch and the tissue yes and it ignited and a small Smart. little burn yeah that can happen, happen. Yep. and uh it caught us off guard yeah and the patient obviously was alarmed about yeah. the small cosmetic uh, yeah. burn but yeah but if you I think that's why sometimes it is just helpful to press yes. on the thing. I, it changed my practice yeah. that from that day on I push on all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Deshmukh, as we get to the end of this, um on the topics we've covered or related, do you have any comments you want emergency providers and practitioners to know? So, you know, f- number 1, I think all of you do an incredible job of making a diagnosis because you are the first responders because somebody gets an event and they come to the ER so you are going to analyze that ECG it is very rare that the electrophysiologist is going to be the first contact or a cardiologist is or a hospitalist is going to be the first contact for this person so it's always going to most of the times happens to the ER uh 
now it is a little bit different because a lot of people also have smart watches so at least i tell them that if they catch it at home make sure if they are coming to the emergency room the classic story is that they get they pull into the drive and the tachycardia goes away then should i go to the emergency room or not go to the emergency room it's always still be better to go to the emergency room to get an evaluation done to see why they had this and if it happens again then you know it can get captured but i don't think every svt should get admitted to the hospital because a lot of these things if you have again you know you are in a hospital system where you are you have a good clinic system they can go as an outpatient and come back but i also feel in today's time if somebody is presenting again and again to the emergency room with an svt it does take a toll on the healthcare delivery system and healthcare dollars and catheter ablation in those patients could be quite cost effective long term for the healthcare system and better for the patient as far as quality of life is concerned so i would you know offer or suggest that you could start offering uh, catheter ablation uh, uh, you know uh, to the patients and then finally you know if they are in uh, uh, they are if, uh, if they are having pre excitation but by chance with your astute eyes you have picked up more than one delta wave make sure they get an echocardiogram and because you know you don't want to miss out on a congenital heart disease or something like that especially abstinence anomaly so that's something you know good to do but i think finally you know all the er docs you know take care of svt so much and you, i mean you give more adenosine than all of us put together so you know you guys know more about it than what we do so another important thing i would do is that when you uh, see a patient with svt and you have a documented tachycardia make sure you give one copy of the ecg to the patient so that uh, if by you know if the you the person who's going to see the patient in the clinic doesn't get that uh, ecg for whatever reason or if it is lost or that rhythm strip is lost then we never know what kind of tachycardia the patient had so always make sure you give a copy of that ecg to the patient so they can show it around and at least or they can take a picture on their phone so at least we have a documentation of that well all i have to say is wow i learned so much this month thank you so much dr deshmukh for joining us on the show To all of our listeners, thank you for making time to join us. As always, remember to like, comment and subscribe, and we can't wait to join you next month with even more incredible content. Have a wonderful month. The Always On EM podcast hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Balamkanda.